0: Well, thank you, Brother Chairman, and my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we looked at then in our first session was this principle of equality taken from Genesis chapters 1 to 3. And so now in our second session, we're going to go all the way back to Genesis 1 again, and we're now going to establish a second principle that ranks alongside equality, and yet is going to be balanced together with it. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about these principles, by the way, is that somehow, you see, we've got to find the balance of these three things as they work together. And God willing, by the time we come to our study tomorrow morning and we look at the question of activity in the ecclesia, we're going to see in a little more detail how it is that these three principles might relate together properly. So so where might we begin our consideration then of the principle of hierarchy? And the answer is, well, surprise, surprise, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. The very same opening session or, or section of Genesis that we began our first study with. So in Genesis chapter 1, and now we're going to read these same verses together, but this time to see a different principle of operation. And we're told this reading from these verses. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Male and female created he then. So, you see, what we're being told in Genesis chapter 1 here in verses 26 to 28 is that they might be male and female, but what's the generic name for the species to which both the male and the female belong? And the answer is that the species is called man. In fact, if you hold your hand in Genesis chapter 1 and come just for a moment to Genesis chapter 5, you'll see what it says there. Because in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1 it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him, male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam. Adam. So the name of the race was in fact the name of the man. In fact, in the book of Genesis here, brothers and sisters, the word Adam, right through from Genesis 1 through to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17, always has the definite article in front of it. So up till chapter 3 verse 17, it should never be translated Adam as a name. It ought always to be translated as a noun the man it is the man who is spoken of in these particular chapters so what we're being told in Genesis 1 and verse 27 here is that although there was a male and a female of the species the fact is that the primacy is given to the man from the beginning because well his is the name that, That ascribes to them both, that belongs to them both. Of course, man here, in verse 27, God created man in his own image, really means mankind, doesn't it? And what was woman called? Well, we're going to find later on that woman is called woman because she was taken out of man says chapter 3 and verse 23 so here we're being told in the record of genesis 1 and verse 27 is that man was given headship from the beginning they might be male and female but the species are known as man he called their name man says genesis chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 and you notice what's interesting about that is this after they're married or before they're married? And the answer is well, it must be before they're married because Genesis chapter 1 is only the record of the fact that God proposes that they be created. They haven't even been formed as yet. And before they've even been formed and brought together and the first marriage has been sanctified, already the headship belongs to the man. Says Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 to 27. So you see, this principle of hierarchy then has got nothing to do with husbands and wives specifically. It relates to men and women in general in the context of their relationship to God. And and I ought to distress that, you see, in the context of their relationship to God. This principle of hierarchy was going to be worked out in the man and the woman, the male and the female, as they would come before the Father and worship him. And notice this, that whatever this hierarchy principle is, it must not, it ought not, it cannot contradict the principle of equality. So there's got to be a balancing here of what exactly it might mean and exactly how it might work. And yet there is clearly a second principle here. And even though verse 28 says that God blessed them and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish and have dominion over the earth, the fact is that that authority that was to be exercised over creation, although they're both joined together in this 28th verse... Ultimately, it would be the man who would accomplish that. And not just the first man, but the second man, the second Adam. And Psalm 8 looks forward, doesn't it, to the time when the dominion promised will finally be accomplished by the man, the second Adam, who will fulfill that principle of dominion. Now, when we come to the second chapter of Genesis, that principle of hierarchy is further reinforced in a number of different areas. Now, here's the first thing, of course, and this is a very clear one, isn't it? The the question of the order of creation. Because Genesis 2 says in verse 7, And Yahweh Elohim formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And then verse 21, verse 22 says, And the rib which Yahweh Elohim had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. So in the words of the apostle Paul, Adam was first formed, then Eve. The man in verse 7 and the woman in verse 22. Now look, you'll probably know that in the story of the Jewish people in the biblical record, there is a law concerning the firstborn. The firstborn had three special prerogatives. Now what were the three great prerogatives of the firstborn? Can anyone tell me? The three prerogatives or privileges of the firstborn. What were they? Priesthood. The double portion and rulership. The principle of rulership belonged to the firstborn as well. Now let me show you something interesting. This is a digression, so I won't actually spend any time on it at all. I'll just sow a seed for you to investigate further. Who was the firstborn of the sons of Jacob? and the answer is of course Reuben and we're told in the blessings of Jacob of Genesis 49 upon his sons he says to Reuben because he was unstable as water thou shalt not have the preeminence he says to his son thou shalt not have the preeminence is the meaning of the Hebrew and I think that the preeminence that he had in mind was the preeminence of the firstborn so Jacob says to his firstborn son you shall not have the firstborn privileges so they pass to others so who did the privilege of rulership go to? To the tribe of Judah. Who did the privilege of priesthood go to? To the tribe of Levi. Who did the privilege of double portion go to? to the tribe of Joseph. It was exactly so. And every one of the three privileges that belonged to the firstborn were taken from Reuben and spread amongst three other tribes. So now, why are we talking about this in Genesis chapter 1, or Genesis chapter 2? And the answer is, brothers and sisters, because Adam was the firstborn in his family, wasn't he? So from the very beginning, Adam, the man and not the woman, had the firstborn rights of the family because he was first formed. So he would be the ruler of the home and the priest of the house and the inheritor of the portion. And that principle of the firstborn right would then, having been established in Adam himself, would then carry forward into his descendants. And therefore, that principle of hierarchy is established by very fact that Adam is formed first ahead of his wife and not only were they formed in a different order but Genesis 2 of course tells us that the manner of their formation was different because the man was formed and then the woman was formed out of the man according to the law of dependence and sympathy so was she in the image and likeness of the Elohim Genesis 1 and the answer is well yes but on the basis that she reflected the man who was in the image and likeness of the Elohim and so by the principle of reflection and the principle of representation, the woman also was in the image and likeness of the Elohim, but she was nevertheless formed out of the man and modelled after him, being taken out of his side. And that law of dependence and sympathy which brought even to being also created the principle of hierarchy by the very basis on which she was created. That, that, that principle of hierarchy was to be seen. Now come and have a look at the law of, the law that was given to them because we referred to this last time and now let's think about this again because you see in our last study we made the point in Genesis 2 and verses 16 and 17 and then in chapter 3 and verses 2 and 3 that both the man and the woman had the divine law that they should obey. But were they given it at the same time? And the answer of Genesis is why no? Because in Genesis chapter chapter 2, it says in verse uh, 16, the Lord God commanded the Adam, the man. Then verse 22 says that the woman was formed. And then chapter 3 verse 2 tells us that Eve obviously understood and knew of the commandment. But the question is, how did Eve know? Because according to the sequence of Genesis chapter 2, she was not formed when the commandment was first given to Adam. And the obvious answer is that she received the law from her husband. That her husband taught the law to his wife. And so in the sequence of Genesis 2 and 3 even though they are both recipients of the divine law and responsible for it, the fact is that the law is given to the man and the man in turn, it would appear, then taught the law to his wife and perhaps did not teach it as perfectly as he might have. And we'll come to that later on in our studies. Now, do you notice this in verse 19 of Genesis chapter 2? It says, And out of the ground... Yahweh Elohim formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle. You know, brothers and sisters, to name is an act of authority. To grant the, the right or the privilege of naming is an act of authority. And it was given to Adam by God, wasn't it? To to have the right and the privilege to name all of the creation. And so the creation is brought before the man, says verse 19, to see what he would call them. And he, it was, who gave names. It was a measure of the authority that he had from the Father. Delegated, by the way, not as of right, but given to him by the Father. Now what's interesting about that is this, that verse 23 says, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. And Adam named his wife. And not the other way round, says Genesis. And that was so, of course, later on, of course, because in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So Adam names the woman and not the other way round. And the granting of that name, the giving of that name is in itself an act of authority. So the principle of hierarchy was established again. And now we come to Genesis chapter 3 into the story of the judgment and the fall. And of course, you know what the record says. It says in verse 9 of Genesis chapter 3, that this is the sequence of the account of the judgment. It says, And Yahweh Elohim called unto Adam, and having spoken to the man... Uh, and brought the man to account first the man refers to the woman the woman refers to the serpent God judges the serpent verse 14 God judges the woman verse 16 and God finally judges the man verse 17 so the sequence of the judgment record of Genesis chapter 3 is that man is held to account first according to the principle of hierarchy and judged last under the same rule. So the very principle by which the judgment record is unfolded shows the greater authority and the greater responsibility that the man had. Now, let me take you to a couple of New Testament passages in that regard. Hold your hand in Genesis chapter 3 because we're going to come back there, but do you remember these references? Firstly, in the book of Romans and chapter 5. And this is what Romans says, talking about the judgment of Genesis chapter 3. Romans 5 puts it this way. Romans 5 and verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Verse 17. For if by one man's offence death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ verse 19 for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous doesn't the book of genesis brothers and sisters in chapter 3 tells us that the woman sinned first doesn't the book of genesis chapter 3 tells us tell us that the woman took of the fruit and gave to her husband but romans 5 says one man sinned and adam is held accountable as having a greater measure of responsibility. On what basis was he held responsible? And the answer is according to the principle of hierarchy, by which he carried the greater measure of responsibility within his own family, within his own marriage, because after all he was the head of the house. And so he's judged to hold the greater responsibility on the very principle of hierarchy. Uh, Remember the first of Corinthians in chapter 15 first of corinthians 15 says something similar so you see i think these verses are are showing that adam is not just treated as the federal head of the race here but as one man in particular as a specific man adam himself and the first of corinthians 15 says and verse 21 for since by man came death By man came also the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And so in both Romans and Corinthians, the teaching of the Apostle Paul is that the man is held primarily accountable for the story of the fall in Genesis 3. And the reason why he's held accountable, brothers and sisters, is because of the principle of hierarchy. That not only gave a greater privilege of authority to Adam, but at the same time passed upon him a greater responsibility. With authority came responsibility. And therefore he is judged that way in the divine record. Now, come back to Genesis chapter 3 then, and let's just have a look at the story of the outworking of the judgment. And we only want to refer to one other matter here, and that's this. That in the story of the judgment that unfolds, in Genesis 3... From verse 14 to verse 19, in the judgment of the serpent and the judgment of the woman and the judgment of the man, the principle of hierarchy is only referred to once. The idea of hierarchy is only referred to once in the whole story of the judgment text of verses 14 to 19. Now, where is the principle of hierarchy referred to in this chapter? And the answer is not the judgment of the serpent and not the judgment of the man. But in the judgment of the woman, we're told this in the 16th verse, when the record says, And unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over me. Now why is it, brothers and sisters, that in the judgment account, the only reference to the principle of hierarchy is found here in the 16th verse in the judgment of the woman? And the reason is very simple, because Genesis 3 is the record of the disruption of the principle of hierarchy, and who was it who set that principle aside? And the answer is the woman did in this chapter. So the only reference to hierarchy is found in the judgment of the woman. And by the way, I think what Genesis chapter 3 is telling us is this, verse 16. When it says, thy desire shall be to thy husband, or as the margin says, subject to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Oh, now by the way, I should just mention the word rule here. Do you know that there are different Hebrew words for rule? One of the Hebrew words for rule is rada, which means to subjugate by conquest. Do you think that's the word used here for the husband ruling over the wife? No, it's not. The word used here in the Hebrew is the word mashal, M-A-S-H-A-L. And mashal, the heart of the Hebrew word mashal, is to rule by the superiority of principles. In fact, that word mashal is the very word for the book for the word proverb. So man was not to exercise his principle of rulership in hierarchy by any means of subjugation or subjection or grinding the woman under his thumb or heel. He was to exercise rulership by the highest, noblest principle of divine principles and divine thoughts. That's the rulership that the Bible has in mind. But nevertheless, says verse 16, the, re, the, 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 the judgment of verse 16 is that God, and, and I want you to notice this carefully, what I'm saying, verse 16 is God reaffirming a principle of hierarchy that had already existed from chapter 1 onwards. It's not the imposition of a new theme or a new principle but the reaffirmation of something that Adam had had before the fall from the very beginning. It is now being reaffirmed that that should be so. So the law or sorry not the law but the the book of genesis here at the foundation of the world affirmed the principle of hierarchy and yet as we've seen whatever that hierarchy is and however it should be uh, enacted it must not contravene the principle of equality at the same time there's a wonderful balance here you see in the outworking of those principles so does genesis one to three teach hierarchy and the answer is i think so Now, do you want to see that in the law? Now, come and have a look at Exodus chapter 13. Now, here is the law concerning firstborns. The law of the firstborn in Israel. And this is what it says. I'm going to read from verse 12. So, Exodus 13, verses 12 and 13. And thou shalt set apart unto Yahweh all that openeth the matrix, And every firstling that cometh of a beast which thou hast, the males shall be Yahweh's. And every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck. And all the firstborn of man among thy children shalt thou redeem. So the law of Exodus was that the firstborns belonged to the father. And that therefore the firstborns had to be be redeemed. Now, you see, what's interesting about this is that he was a ranking, therefore, as far as the firstborn was concerned, before the child had ever done or even thought, a single thought. He was the firstborn. He belongs to the Father, but he must be redeemed. Now, do you know what's interesting about the law of Exodus 13? A woman could never be counted as the firstborn. Only the firstborn son, only the firstborn male was counted for the firstborn rights and the firstborn responsibilities. Females were excluded from the reckoning of the firstborn in the law of Exodus 13. On what basis, brothers and sisters, might they have been excluded? Is it because they lacked the ability to understand divine principles? No, We've seen that they have equality of understanding. They're excluded on the basis of hierarchy, aren't they? On the principle of hierarchy that was established in the book of Genesis. Leviticus chapter 27 is the chapter in the law on the estimation of vows. And we're told that the law allowed for a person to be vowed to the service of the truth and then for that person to be redeemed back for some cash value the person could of course be left ultimately as a vow themselves and there are occasions in the text where a person so vowed to the service of the truth was never redeemed but left to be the fulfillment of the vow in the service of the truth But the normal way that Israelites dealt with such vows was to commit a person to the responsibility of the service of the truth for a period of time and then to perhaps pay a cash equivalent for that. But look at the cash calculations of Leviticus 27 and verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, when a man shall make a singular vow, the persons shall be for Yahweh by thy estimation and thy estimation shall be of the male... From 20 years old even unto 60 years old, even thy estimation shall be 50 shekels of silver after the silver of the shekel, of the sanctuary. But if it be a female, then thy estimation shall be 30 shekels. And if it be from 5 years old even unto 20 years old, verse 5, then thy estimation shall be of the male 20 shekels, but for the female, 10 shekels. And if it be from a month old, even unto five years old, then thy estimation shall be of the male five shekels, and for the female, thy estimation shall be three shekels. And if from sixty years old and above, if it be a male, then thy estimation shall be fifteen shekels, and for the female, ten shekels. So the value of persons was different in the estimation of the law markedly different for the male and the female is it because a female who was offered under a vow was any less dedicated in spirit? no was she inferior in terms of her love for the truth? no was she somehow less in the sense of her possible dedication to that vow? No. On what principle did the valuations differ in Numbers 27, brothers and sisters? And the answer is only according to the principle of hierarchy that a greater value was attached to the man because of the principle of authority that came with that of hierarchy and only on that basis because this, remember, cannot contravene the principle of equality that we've already seen elsewhere. A woman was not inferior in those respects yet somehow the law estimated them of different value and the answer to the conundrum is the principle of hierarchy made a difference between the two. Numbers chapter 30 is the law concerning the making of private vows. And Numbers 30 tells us that this was the law of the making of a vow. It says in Numbers 30 and verse 2, If a man vow a vow unto Yahweh, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. But if a woman also vow a vow unto Yahweh, and bind herself by a bond being in her father's house in her youth, and her father hear her vow, and the bond wherewith she hath bound her soul, well, if her father shall hold his peace at her, then her vows shall stand, and every bond wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand. But if her father disallow her in the day that he heareth, Not any of her vows, or of her bonds, wherewith she hath bound her soul, shall stand. And Yahweh shall forgive her, because her father disallowed her. So here in the law of vows, where a person might of their own free will and volition make some vow to pledge themselves to the spirit of loyalty and service to the truth, the law said that a man's vow would stand always. But a woman's vow could be overruled by either a father or a husband. Now look at verse 9. But every vow of a widow, and of her that is divorced, wherewith they have bound their souls, shall stand against her. Now, why would it be that a spiritually minded young girl, earnest and dedicated in her father's house, could not make a vow that would stand unless her father approved? And yet a widow, living in her own house, could make a vow that would automatically stand. And the reason is because in the widow's house, there is no man. So there is no principle of hierarchy to impede her from making a vow that automatically stands she is the head of her own house but the young lady in her father's house or the woman in her husband's house is bound by the principle of hierarchy because a man is present in that home so the law of vows was consistent with the principle of hierarchy Isaiah chapter 3 In the days of Isaiah, this is what he said. And this was not a good thing, this was a bad thing. This was the lamentation of the prophet concerning the state of the nation and to whence it had fallen in his days. Because Isaiah chapter 3 says that such was the, such was the spirit of the nation in that day. Isaiah 3 says verse 12, As for my people, Children are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. And the lamentation of Isaiah the prophet is that the nation had reached such a stage where women were the rulers and of course what he's saying is it ought not to be so. That that's a reversal of the principles of Genesis. That this was not a good situation. That this was not the ideal that was set forth by the Father from the beginning. But the indictment of Isaiah 3, of course, is on the men who were so incompetent and so unable and so spiritually incapable that they could not lead the nation. And women did instead. It was an indictment on the males, wasn't it? But it wasn't how things should be. Because for women to rule the nation would be a reversal of the principle of hierarchy. Now come and have a look at the New Testament then and the 1st of Corinthians chapter 14. Now this is quite an interesting chapter because it's Paul's exposition upon the spirit gifts and how they should be shown in their operation. And uh, this is what he says in the 1st of Corinthians chapter 14 and in talking on the subject of the spirit gifts this is what he says... And we're going to read from verse 33. So the first of Corinthians, chapter 14, and verse 33. He says this. He said, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And really, you see, there should be a full stop there. That's the end of the sentence. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And now a new sentence begins. And that new sentence belongs to the verse that's going to follow and what the text should therefore say is as in all ecclesias of the saints let your women keep silence in the ecclesias for it has not permitted them to speak and so the ruling that's going to be brought forth in the 34th verse was not something special or peculiar for Corinth not something unique for this ecclesia but a judgment that the apostle gave in every place in every ecclesia this was the common thing And the judgment was, verse 34, that the women are to keep silence in the ecclesiastes. Now, you see that word silence, you know, that's the very word in verse 28 and in verse 30. Let's just have a look at those two verses. It says, if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence. And verse 30, if anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first keep silence. So, you see, the idea of the word silence here in verse 34 is that it is the spirit of one who listens quietly to another who is the speaker, as opposed to being the speaker themselves. And so the judgment of the apostle here is firstly that the woman ought to keep silence. They ought to listen to those who are speaking. And then he says, for it is not permitted them to speak. Now, that word speak there is an interesting word because, well, it means to utter words, but I think it's used in a particular context, you see, in this chapter. And I think that the spirit of the word speak in this chapter is the spirit of the teaching role. Now, come and see how it's used, because it's only used on four other occasions. It's the word in verse 3 when it says in the 1st of Corinthians 14, verse 3, He that prophesieth. Speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. Now the word speak in verse 3 is really the teaching role, isn't it? Those who are teaching in the ecclesia. So it's not just speaking ordinary words, it's the speaking of instruction. It's the same word in verse 19. Yet in the ecclesia I had rather... Speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also. So that word speak in verse 19 is again the same word. It's not to speak in general terms. It's the speaking of the teaching role in the ecclesia. It's the same word in verse 28 and verse 29 if there be no interpreter let him keep silence in the ecclesia and let him speak to himself let the prophets speak two or three now the prophets who speak or the one who doesn't speak in verses 28 and 29 are the teachers now that's the word the same word in verse 34 when it says that the sisters the women are not permitted to speak in the ecclesia because clearly by the way brothers and sisters they do speak does this mean that a sister cannot add the word amen at the end of a prayer? Does this mean that a sister cannot open her voice and sing the hymns? Does this mean that a sister cannot discuss the truth with anyone, including brethren, after the meeting? Now, of course it doesn't. Not saying that, is it? The particular speaking that the Apostle has in mind is the teaching and instruction role in the ecclesia. That's the speaking that the Apostle says that she ought not to perform. Why? Why should she not take up that principle? And the answer is because to assume the leadership of teaching is to negate, to undermine the principle of hierarchy in our dealings one with another in the sight of God. And so that the principle of hierarchy might not therefore be undermined, she is not to take over that particular leadership responsibility in ecclesial activities and in ecclesial life now verse 35 says if they learn anything let them ask their husbands at home and by the way that word husbands is not a good translation and you ought to change it and the reason is because this is not about husbands and wives if you're going to translate the word that's used for men in verse 35 as husbands then you'd have to use the word woman to, uh, to mean wives and, and clearly those two words do not mean that in this chapter. It's not about husbands and wives, it's about men and women in the ecclesia. In fact, the two words that the Apostle Paul uses are the very words that he ought to use to, to, to denote men and women. He doesn't use the word uh, adelphoi, which is really the brethren. He uses the word for the man aner from andros, which means the male. And he uses the word guner for the woman, which means literally, as it were, the female. So what we ought to say in verses 34 and 35 is simply that. Let the woman keep silence. And if they will learn at home, if they will learn anything, verse 35, let them ask the men folk, is how it ought to be translated. All the men folk. It's to do with the interreaction of the men and the women in the ecclesia that this particular ruling is being given. And what's the basis of Paul's judgment? And remember what he said, this is for all ecclesias, not just for Corinth. And this is the inspired record. You know, one of the interesting things, of course, about the First Corinthians 14 is that the very context of this chapter is the exercise of spirit gifts. And most of you will know that whenever you go to a Pentecostal outpouring of spirit gifts, who is it that speaks the most prominently? And the answer is the women folk. And yet in this very chapter about how the spirit gifts should operate, the Apostle Paul says the women are to keep silence. This is the very chapter on spirit gifts and their operation. Paul says they are not to speak in the ecclesia. And what's his reason? Verse 34, end of the verse. Because he says, they're commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law. Now, where did he get that from? And what do you think he had in mind, brothers and sisters, when he said, the law teaches this? And the answer is, well, it could be the law of vows of Numbers 30. But I think that the law he had in mind was the law of Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Thy desire shall be subject to thy husband and he shall rule over thee and the principle of hierarchy established from the very beginning of time i think is the very basis of the apostle's argument here in the first of corinthians chapter 14 concerning the teaching role in ecclesial life is, is that saying that therefore sisters haven't got a mind for spiritual things no of course not is that saying that they're incapable of reasoning spiritually no of course not Is it saying that therefore sisters ought not to teach? The answer is no. It's not saying that. What it is saying is that they ought not to teach in the ecclesia where brethren are present, and where the principle of hierarchy is therefore in operation. Now come and have a look at the first of Corinthians eleven as illustrative of this same principle. Now, by the way, we're not going to look at the 1 Corinthians 11 in detail. And I'm not going to deal with head coverings. In case you think I am, because of course this is the chapter on head coverings. But I'm not going to cover head coverings as a subject. That's not this morning's theme. All I'm going to do, though, is I just want to show you how the Apostle argues the question. I'm not going to come to any conclusion, and we're not going to talk about the application of head coverings and when and why and, and how and what they should look like or anything of that nature at all. Just the, the principle of the apostle's argument. Well, here's the first thing First Corinthians eleven, verse three. I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. What's that principle? That's the principle of hierarchy. So how does the Apostle begin his treatise on head coverings, irrespective of what conclusions we might come to? And the answer is, the very first thing he says is, we need to understand the principle of hierarchy. Oh, and did you notice how careful the Apostle is in terms of what he says? Do you see what he said? Is every woman bound by the principle of hierarchy? The answer is yes. And, says the Apostle, Do you think every man is bound by the principle of hierarchy? The answer is yes. So when we talk about hierarchy, brothers and sisters, we ought never to imagine that it's a unique thing that women are subject to and men are free from, because they're not. We're all part of a larger principle of hierarchy which finally brings all things beneath the Father himself says Paul. That's how he starts his whole argument. Now, let's just trace through just the middle section of this and I'm just going to pick up the record from the seventh verse because we haven't got time to look at the text as a whole and I just want to make one point, you see, from from the record here. So, verse 7. Indeed, ought not to cover his head, for as much as the he, he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Do you know what he's saying in verse 7? He's saying this. He is saying that hierarchy is a principle based upon Genesis 1, verse 27, isn't he? That's where he's taking this from. Verses 26 and 27. Hierarchy is a principle based on Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. That although the male and the female are in the image and likeness of God, the woman is so through the principle of reflecting the man by being formed after him. So what he's teaching in verse 7 is that hierarchy is established by the order of their formation. Hierarchy is established by the order of their formation genesis chapter 1 now verse 8 for the man is not of the woman but the woman of the man now where does that come from well that's genesis chapter 2 verses 18 and 23 sorry it's genesis chapter 2 verses 21 and 22 That the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. That by a creative act he formed the woman out of the man and therefore established a principle of hierarchy. So whereas verse 7 says that hierarchy is established by the order of their formation, verse 8 is teaching that hierarchy is established by the method of their formation. And now he says in verse 9... Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. So where does that come from? Well, that's Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, isn't it? It is not good that the man should dwell alone, I will make him help meet for him. So the principle of the first of Corinthians 11 and verse 9 is that hierarchy is established by the purpose of their formation that the woman was for the man and not the other way round. So, you see what the Apostle's done. Verse 7, Genesis chapter 1. Verse 8, Genesis chapter 2. Verse 9, Genesis chapter 2. And then we come to this tricky little business of the angels in the 10th verse which says, For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Now, you see that phrase, for this cause, that, that phrase in the Greek is, is really what you might call an expression of summary it 's a phrase that means that he 's coming to the crowning point of his argument, that he 's coming to the climax of, of how he 's going to bring together this argument, and therefore I think that the power of what he 's going to say in verse ten in verse ten is going to be the, the end of this sequence of thought that has been argued out of the record going all the way back to genesis now look i've heard all sorts of explanations about verse 10 no doubt you have as well here's just a few of them one suggestion is that when it says because of the angels that the angels are unseen observers at meetings that they are aware of our motives and that they are watching for seemly conduct and that they would be shocked at the defiance of sisters who did not wear head coverings Well, whether or not that's true, there doesn't seem to be any Bible evidence for that particularly, does there? Interesting, though, the thought might be. The second suggestion is that because of the angels refers to the elders of the ecclesia, who are responsible for ecclesial conduct, and therefore conformity conformity is, is urged for the sake of those who have the responsibility of the ecclesia, because of the messengers. Well, it is true that the word angels sometimes does mean mortals, doesn't it? But the context will tell us that that is so, and I don't think there's anything in the context on this particular occasion that would tell us that we ought to look at mortal messengers rather than the angels themselves. The third suggestion is, uh, one which was common amongst the Jewish people, which was that these might be evil angels, and that if women didn't have their veils on, they could be in danger of what these evil angels might do. Well, again, it's um, a really interesting idea but entirely lacking in scriptural foundation, unfortunately. Then the next suggestion is that the angels are veiled in the presence of God under his authority and so the women ought to be veiled likewise in the ecclesia. And again, the answer is, well, that might possibly be true but I don't think we've got anything in the Bible that tells us whether the angels are veiled before God or not there's no particular proof of that idea is there and then there's another thought that says well maybe because of the angels is because one day we will supersede the angels but because that time has not yet come and because that day has not arrived that we give honour to the angels now by declaring that in the meantime we're under the principles of, of hierarchy until the change overcomes well again I don't think that that's the case because I think that the principles of Genesis will be in the kingdom So now here's another suggestion for the first of Corinthians chapter 11 verse 10. Isn't the whole basis of Paul's argument here Genesis 1, Genesis 2 and I think in verse 10 he says Genesis 3 because what happened in Genesis 3, brothers and sisters, but the story of the fall. And what is the story of the fall precisely? And the answer is that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. Wise as who, brothers and sisters? Wise as the angels? As wise as the Elohim? and she sought for equality with the Elohim but in so doing she led her husband disrupted the principle of hierarchy and led the family into disaster on the occasion of this chapter and who reaffirmed the principle of hierarchy in Genesis chapter 3 when it says the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day and the answer is it was an angel wasn't it? it wasn't God himself It was the angelic representative of God who brought forth the judgment of Genesis chapter 3 and reaffirmed as the final ruling of the angels that the principle of hierarchy will be upheld. And I think because of the angels in verse 10 is simply saying that the head covering is a celebration of that principle that goes all the way back to the ruling of the angels in Genesis chapter 3 after the woman grasped at equality. So Eve overrode Adam's authority and the head covering is a declaration that the woman in Christ is not going to do the same thing but that she will faithfully perform her supporting role and the basis of the Apostle's argument is Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3 exactly as we would expect them to do and now look at how marvelously balanced the apostle was and see what he says in the verse that follows lest any sister should feel that the apostle was unfair that the apostle was unkind that the apostle lacked balance verse 11 nevertheless neither is the man without the woman neither the woman without the man for as the woman is of the man, even so the man also is by the woman, but all things are of God. you know what verses 11 and 12 are saying, brothers and sisters? The Apostle is saying, whatever you might understand concerning the principle of equality, don't ever forget this, that in God's eyes, they're still equal. They're equal. And they both come under the headship of Almighty God himself. Don't ever forget that, says the Apostle. The Apostle is, is really balanced in what he says in the story. So the veil here marks not just the authority so much of a husband, but the spirit of a sister's willing acknowledgement of a principle that goes all the way back to Genesis 3. She says, I agree with the ruling of the angels that this should be so. And it's all argued from Genesis, brothers and sisters. Such is the power of the New Testament record that we haven't really gone very far at all, have we? The Apostle doesn't deviate, he doesn't stray from the foundation principles established at the very beginning. Now what's interesting about all this is that in addition to the principle of equality and hierarchy, we believe that God has actually endowed the man and the woman so that they can comfortably perform those roles and has specially blessed them with gifts so that they can fulfil those roles and that God willing will be the basis of our study this evening to look at that question of diversity and how God has empowered the man and the woman to live by these things and to be comfortable in the performance of the different functions that he has assigned to them so let's summarise what we've seen then in this study man and women were subject to the divine order, which assigned to them respectively the roles of leadership and support in God's purpose. This hierarchy of order and function is to be respected. You know, brothers and sisters, I think that this may be a truth. And I offer it as a closing observation. I think that in the world in which we live, that some sisters need to appreciate and become comfortable with the principle of hierarchy. And I think that is equally true that some brethren need to understand properly the principle of equality and if we do brothers and sisters and if we can then we will begin to unlock the marvellous balance that God has given here so that men and women can serve him faithfully in their respective roles and celebrate as we shall see in our next study the diversity that he has blessed them with